The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, we need to start with some basics, and you wouldn't think that a greeting would be the basics of theology, but if you know Paul, he dripped theology. And so it's important for us to get right from this very first verse some very enlightening realities that will really affect our study throughout the whole book. Paul begins his letter as any writer in antiquity would do. He starts with his name and the name of the person with him. He identifies himself for the benefit of his readers, and then he clearly identifies who he's writing to. So he says in Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in, the, uh, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Paul is more than an ancient writer. He's also a Christian, and more than that, he's a Christian theologian. So when he writes these things, he writes them not as mere civilities like Dear John or Dear Lois, and then winds it up with sincerely or cordially or kindest regards. But he writes them to communicate Christian truth and to teach the deepest and most significant of Christian relationships. So let's begin with this first phrase that I want you to see. A servant of Jesus Christ. A servant of Christ Jesus. When Paul introduces himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus, he uses a word in the Greek that literally means slave. Paul wanted to say that he was Christ's slave, and he wished to serve Christ as any dedicated servant would do. No doubt, Paul was implying this truth to himself, but also to all his readers. And of course, that applies to you and I today. He taught this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 6.20. He said, "'For you were bought with a price.'" So glorify God in your body, and therefore we are to glorify God in our bodies, in our spirit, which are God's. You know, if, if we would just take a few moments and meditate on that reality, you were bought with a price. Now, those of us who are Christians who have given our lives to Christ, trust Christ as our Savior, For certain, we are wrapped up in the reality that we know where we're going to be, that heaven is our final destination, that we will be with Christ forever. And so we rejoice in that truth. But sometimes we forget that there was a transaction that took place. There was a transaction that took place. When you came to Christ and realized that the God of heaven, who so loved you that he sent his Son to take on the form of man, to die and pay that price. He offers it to you as a free gift. When you realize that and you surrender to him, there is a transaction that takes place. He is purchasing you out of the slave market of sin into his own possession. You belong to Christ. On that basis, Paul says, so glorify God in your body. In other words, 
If you belong to Christ, then be Christ in every area of your life. Your plans, your goals, your desires, what you want to do, how you want to do it. How often do you get up in the morning and think, okay, Lord, this is your day. Make sure I am following you. And so I really think it's important for us to understand that whole aspect of Christianity. For certain, it's a great and glorious truth for us, but we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to Christ. So it's a spiritual law that no one can become a servant of Jesus Christ until he realizes that by nature he is a slave to sin. In antiquity, there were three ways a person could become a slave. First, he could become a slave by conquest. An army would come and conquer a country, and those people would then become slaves to the conquerors. Second, a person could become a slave by birth. Any child born to a slave was automatically the property of the slave owner. And then third, a person could become a slave by debt. And many poor people in those days sold their children into slavery to try to pay their debts. In fact, this was such a common thing that the Jewish people even had a law to lessen the forces of this custom. Every 50 years, 50 years in the year of Jubilee, those who had become slaves by debt were automatically set free. And you can see the details of this in Leviticus 25. But it's striking that against the same background, the Bible teaches that all men become slaves to sin in very similar ways as a person became a physical slave. For example, first, the Bible teaches that human beings are born in sin. David wrote in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, this doesn't mean the, the sex act is a sin. I mean, that was created by God and is wonderful. It simply means that mother is a sinner, father is a sinner, and their children are born with a sin nature. So we were born in sin. The Bible also teaches that we are slave by conquest. Sin rules over us so that we cannot do the things that we would do. Paul made this clear in Romans 7 in his famous statement when he said, The things that I should do I don't, and what I shouldn't do I do, a wretched man that I am. And then the psalmist says in Psalm 19, verse 13, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And then Solomon speaks of being bound by sin in Proverbs 5.22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast to the cords of his sin. So we are slaves by conquest. And then third, we are also sinners by debt. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Paul knew that he had been a slave in each of these three ways. And every person must realize the same thing. In the same way, a person must know that he or she is enslaved spiritually before he will turn to the one who can set him free. So in order to want to be set free, you first have to know that you're in bondage. And this is the one area that is so difficult for man today. 
most people feel that they're really okay. They feel that they don't commit crimes and they may give money to charity and they're, they're pretty good. The problem is that we judge ourselves on human standards and not a wholly omnipotent God standards. And just as there are several ways of becoming enslaved in ancient times, so there were several ways of a slave to be set free. First, a person could earn freedom, or he could buy it, or it could be given to him by someone who was able to pay the price for his redemption. Three ways. But although there were three ways in the human sense, there is only one way spiritually. He, to be bought by one who alone can pay the price. No one will ever by his own salvation. The best we can do, the Bible calls, is our acts of righteousness, which are filthy rags before a holy God. You can't earn it, but God will freely, on the basis of Christ's sacrificial death, offer it to you. Let's go back to Romans 6.23 that I alluded to earlier. The wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Imagine you're lost with absolutely no way out, none whatsoever. Yet God so loved that he gave freely. And he offers to all who will come his free grace and mercy. And because of that, Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. This is a great deliverance that Paul knew personally. So if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you have taken this free gift of salvation, you are no longer condemned in spite of what you might think. And you see, what the evil one wants to do is to keep you thinking that you're not worth it. He wants you to keep thinking that you're just a rotten, filthy sinner. Well, of yourself, you are. But when the gift of God is a free and eternal cleansing of your soul, you are no longer condemned. You become someone very special. So we pass from bondage of sin and loss to bondage of love and gratitude. It is the way of joy and genuine spiritual satisfaction. And so this brings us to a very key understanding. And that is the other, another truth that needs to be seen in this phrase, which comes from where Christ says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... It's his allegiance to Christ, Jehovah. It's interesting because the phrase is not unique with Paul. When he refers to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus, he is really not coming up with a new phrase in order to define a relationship. He is simply borrowing a phrase from the Old Testament and giving it significant Christian meaning and content. We must not forget that in the Old Testament, figures were called servants of God, that is, servants of Jehovah. 
The opening verses of Joshua speak of Moses, the servant. And in Judges 2, verse 8, Joshua himself is called the servant of the Lord. David is called my servant or his servant several times in the Psalms. And you also find the phrase, my servants or his servants, the prophets, in Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, uh, Amos, and and on and on it goes. So this phrase was familiar to Paul and to the Jewish people. So how significant then that Paul substitutes his own name for those who were the servants of God in the Old Testament times and the name of Jesus for the name of Jehovah here. Paul did not teach new religion. He did not teach a new God or any kind of new contradictory revelation. The God who had spoken long ago through the prophets was now speaking in Paul's day through Jesus Christ. And that very same person is God the Father whom we serve today. So now we come to a very unique portion. And this is where another amazing truth comes out of this first very single verse. Saints in Christ Jesus. We read this phrase, saints in Christ Jesus, those to whom the Apostle Paul is writing. These were the Christians at Philippi. They were not special Christians. They were not any different than you and I. They were people, in fact, quite like you and I. Hence, the title applies to us as it does every Christian. Paul writes to the saints at Rome, the saints at Corinth, the saints at Ephesus, and so on. In every case, he means believers. So, A great deal of trouble today has caused many people to have a misunderstanding of what saint really means. Uh, They think of it as having to do with one's personal holiness. Well, I can assure you it has nothing to do with one's personal holiness. The one who is a saint in the biblical sense will strive to be holy for sure, but his holiness, however little or however great it may be, does not make him holy. He is a saint because he has been set apart by God. The biblical word for saint refers to consecration. This means uh, the very evident, clear Old Testament truth that was talked about uh, in consecrating items. We go back to uh, Exodus 40. Moses instructed by God to consecrate the altar and the basin in the midst of the tabernacle. In other words, Paul was to make them saints. Now, that may sound awkward to think about, but clearly the chapter does not refer to any intrinsic change in the makeup of these stone objects. What we're talking about here is that those items have been set apart for a specific use. Now, we hear Jesus talking about this in John 17 in his great prayer. He says in verse 19, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified by truth. So this does not mean that Jesus made himself holy. He is holy. He is the very definition of holiness. It does mean that he separated himself unto a specific task. which was to come, walk the earth, and then give his life a ransom for many. 
In the same way, the Bible teaches that those who are Christians have been set apart by God. So think about this. If you're here this morning and you have accepted Christ's free gift of salvation, you are now set apart from this world unto Christ. First Peter talk or Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. He says, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, notice, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light." This isn't just talking about witnessing. It's it's praising. It's surrendering. It's bowing the knee. If you and I would get this truth down once and for all, it would absolutely radicalize your walk for Christ. You are a people for his own possession. Now, earlier I shared the verse that you've been bought with a price. So allow this concept to begin to echo through your mind. Because it's absolutely critical to get this right here and now in this verse 1. So you can handle the rest of the book in its proper perspective. You have been purchased. A transaction. God owns you. And he not only owns you, he has purchased you for his own possession. Do you know what that literally means? We say this every week, but let me just try to put it in a little different perspective. You were lost, and you were purchased. You were purchased for his own, his own, God's own possession. That means that your life is not yours anymore. And whatever Christ has planned for you, that's his will for your life. And you see, that's how you and I have the capacity to get through very difficult things. That's how you and I have the capacity to enjoy wonderful victories in deep valleys of of difficulty. Because we're owned by Christ. Nothing comes into your life that he hasn't allowed. Nothing, absolutely nothing, not your own mistakes, not your own victories, not your own shortcomings, failures, whatever. Your life is hid in Christ. Now, we may try to derail it by dumb decisions and making mistakes, but the point is, you belong to Christ. And he has a plan for your life. Before the foundation of the world, he ordained a walk that you and I are to walk in it. We are to live a life that produces fruit. He has an amazing life for you. So when you stop to realize, well, if I'm not my own, if I've been bought with a price, and I've been bought for his own possession then maybe I need to stop and evaluate the path I'm on. Am I really following Christ's path? 
Because the more I ignore it and try to do it my own way, the deeper and farther away I'm going to get. Now, the blessing is you can never get away. That's the blessing. But you and I can sure minimize a whole lot of heartache if we would just give it up to him and let him have his way. Amen? That is the true joy that he promises. You are his own possession. So if you are a Christian, God has set you apart in this very way. Listen, David was an adulterer. But before God, he was a saint. For God set him apart unto himself. Jeremiah was a rebellious prophet. But before God, he was a saint. Because God set him apart to himself. Craig Malcolm is a rebellious sinner. But God set me apart unto himself and made me a saint. I don't know what you think saints are, but myself, nothing. In him, royalty, royalty, because I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I'm to glorify God in my life, and so are you. And just think for a moment what your life would look like when it brings glory to Christ. Imagine your head hitting the pillow at night, exhausted, worn out, tired, but be able to just sigh and say to God, I followed you today. I followed you today. Wasn't perfect. Probably wasn't all you wanted, but God, you were before me today. And tomorrow I do the same thing, and the next day, and the next day. Because you purchased me. And out of immense gratitude, I want my life to be yours in every way you, you deem necessary. So, if you are a Christian, you are a saint, regardless of your situation in life. We are so, not because of what we have done, but because we have been separated unto God in Christ Jesus. And this is the basis of true and complete joy. This is joy no matter what. And finally, Paul brings the officers in, overseers and deacons. Finally, he, Paul mentions this. The overseers who were the pastors of the local congregation, the elders, and the deacons who were those elected to care for the needy and the sick. These labored with the local believers in the spread of the gospel and the strengthening of Christians. If the church was going to be guided, there must be those who could oversee the work. And these were bishops, overseers, elders. And if there were needy amongst them, the sick, the widows, the poor, it was the deacons that came along to execute that. These became known as deacons. All of these worked together. But here's what I think is a very unique word in this whole thing, and that's the little word, with. Many who hold office today try to lord it over. You know, they try to be prestigious. Many religions, many sects, you know, they're, they're the hierarchy, and they, they like being that way. That's not the way it is in Christendom. 
In fact, I can tell you here at Grace, I may be called the, the lead elder or the teaching pastor, the senior pastor, but with our elders, I'm no different than the others. My voice is no stronger than anybody's, and we work in a very unified way. And then we even will go to the deacons with things we're working on to gain their insights because we highly value these men and their spiritual lives. And then when that's all done, we come to you for your approval. You see, we are all on the same plane. And we work with each other. And that's the secret of a successful church. That's the secret that we're talked about this, the secret of progress in the local church. So where the church has gotten off track today is this hierarchy that almost is like a business model where they're trying to grow and gain business sense rather than just together meeting the needs of the people and letting God give the increase. Now, I can say that because we're not a big church. Maybe that's an excuse, right? But the reality is that's the way it's set up in the New Testament. We are all on the same plane, serving together to glorify Christ. And this was God's way of blessing the little church at Philippi and it's God's way of blessing Grace Fellowship Church today. You do not need to be a deacon or an elder, but you can work together with God's saints to achieve God's spiritual end. God wants you involved. God wants you participating in ministry. And the very fact that you're a Christian is proof enough that you have been gifted. One reason we advocate the discipleship classes, the Sunday school classes, the Bible studies, is certainly for knowledge, but just as important for you to find your gift. Because the scriptures are clear that God has gifted you in his service. And so it's important for us to have that clear understanding. God has gifted you. He has set you apart. Think about this. You are a saint. You are a saint. You know, years ago, there was a cartoon that, that was floating around. I'm sure most of you have seen it. I don't know, Katrina, if you, if you have that, you can throw that up real quick. See if how many of you remember this. Remember that? It's kind of funny, tongue-in-cheek. But guess what? It's true. You are Somebody. You are the child of the king, the creator of the universe, died for you. He purchased you. He owns you. And he has in store for you joy no matter what. I didn't say problem free because I'll tell you what, in the problem sometimes it's greater joy. When you see him work. But what Paul is going to be writing through these four chapters is laying out a life for Christians that is so far above and beyond where we have settled for. And my goal is that we would seek to put ourselves on his path that we might know the immense joy he has for it. So if you'll get this down... It's going to make our study in Philippians far more meaningful. And you will be able to discover the true joy 
that he really has for all of us. And Father, we thank you this morning for this first verse. I mean, the doctrine that just drips from one verse, and we know that it's going to be just so over, overpowering as we continue to move forward. But I pray that we'll get that reality, Lord, that we are saints, servants, slaves to you, bond slaves, choosing to serve you as master and Lord, and that in so doing, you're cultivating within us a life, setting us apart for your glory and for your use. And so I pray now, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of each one of us. And Lord, if there are any here this morning who do not know you as their personal Savior, that they would realize there's something far more meaningful here and that you would draw them to us that we might share with them the simplicity of the gospel and how they can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they have eternal life. So we'll praise you for what you're doing and give you all the glory in Christ's precious name. Amen. God bless.